Welcome to Park City Church. You're listening to our weekly message, where we hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know and follow Jesus and welcome and serve others. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians uh, 1 this morning. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. But uh, one song in particular uh, came to my attention this week, just kind of been thinking about it. And, and there's a lyrics from 1970. This, this was the lyric, uh, which he sings in a way that I feel like only Elvis can, a kind of like um, aching crooning that uh, just taps something deep, I think, in the human heart. And th- this is what he said, oh, oh, make the world go away, get it off. And then, and then he repeats it again, which you can, you almost it feels, you can feel the ache, get it off of my, off of my shoulders. It's beautiful. It resonates, I think, on a, on a number of like planes. Maybe that is a sentiment you feel for a variety of reasons. The world feels overwhelmingly burdensome. Uh, Elvis sings it for particular reasons in, in this moment. But I, I want to suggest that it sort of lands for us as we hear the reading from First Thessalonians. I, I want to suggest that it maybe. Uh, we hear it in uh, one particular way, which is as, as a response to, as one possible response to some of the questions we thought about last week and that uh, we'll consider this week that Thessalonians asks us to answer, which is this question, what do we do with the world that sometimes feels incompatible with our Christian faith? Right, so whatever your relationship to faith in Jesus, if it's a journey you're in any way on, or if you're just an observer of culture in the church, maybe you've been hurt by it, maybe it's sort of been in the periphery of your life, but here, you're here this morning in community, the question still has some relevance. What, what, what relationship does, does the Christian faith, how does it relate to the world around it? And we considered responses last week. It can pull away, it can respond in anger, it can try to sort of like control it from the top down, all these kinds of things. But one response, I think, is probably to sing with Elvis, right? Oh, make the world go away. Get it off, get it off of my shoulders. How do you, how do you, how does the Christian faith keep engaging with the world that it's called to be in and not of, uh, that it's called to love, but not just sort of like wholesale accept? What's it look like to be a Christian in a, a space like that and not get tired or get angry or get afraid or uh, get indifferent or get callous? Uh, what's it look like to live the Christian faith in that space and, and not just want to sing with Elvis? to croon sort of to the world, make it go away, get it off of my shoulders. I want to suggest that 
our reading in Thessalonians, much like it did last week, it speaks to that space for you, regardless of sort of where you are in life, as well, it provides us, I don't know, it invites us into um, a, a way in which to think about and to live your faith in the, all the different spaces that you are. Work, home, play, civic spaces, uh, all the different places you live your faith. I want to start uh, sort of, to, I want to hold that feeling, and I want to start at the end of the passage this morning. Right at the very end, I think in this moment, Paul zeroes in a little bit more. He gives us a little more clarity in our reading this morning on, on maybe how we might think about what it looks like to live as a Christian in the world that is incompatible and even sometimes opposed or hostile. And, and he takes us right to the end with a beautiful picture of what is sometimes, um, you know, not a popular word, and a, a beautiful picture of conversion. We, we read it in verses 9 and 10. For they themselves, Paul's writing, he's writing to them and, and talking about how news of their change of life is spreading throughout the region. And he says, these places, people in other regions are, are reporting concerning uh, the kind of reception we've had among you, he says, and how you have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God in verse 9. And then in verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. I, I, I want to start with a couple of themes that are in this section of the reading that uh, I think sort of help us think about this place of tension, how your Christian faith relates to the world. And it's these characteristics that, that Paul mentions here of holiness and hope. Twin themes that will appear again and again throughout the letter that Paul writes to this early group of Christians, holiness and, and hope. These are big words, lots of sort of ways we could talk about them. Uh, I, I'll just simply, will approach them this way as we find them in the reading. As a picture of holiness, we, we read that they turned away from idols and to God, right? So this sort of, this, this, there was a change in them from who they were to who they are now because of Jesus, holiness. They turned away from sort of the world as it was constructed around them to God. But then hope, this beautiful picture of the end, holiness and hope where not only are they changing, leaving idols and serving God, but now they're filled with, with hope that God is still at work, that Jesus will come again. Turning and waiting, holiness and hope. These are themes, I think, that will characterize the Christian life again and again and again in the pages of the New Testament and in your life as well. It, just, to, just as a brief aside, they parallel the themes we talked about last week, faith, love, and hope. Faith, a turning to God away from idols. Faith in, in, in God to serve the living and true God. Love, sort of love in community and love for, for the enemies, right? Uh, and then hope, waiting for Jesus who delivers, who redeems, who rescues, these twin themes of holiness and hope. But I, I just want to invite us to maybe think about, just kind of back up into this moment. What exactly, to the extent that we're able, what, 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 is, what does it mean, what, what Paul says here? Uh, the implications of this sort of brief statement. It's just a summary. Their lives have been changed. But let's just pause with, with it for a moment to consider what it meant for them to turn from idols and to serve God. All right, so we're going to think about here, look at idols like there and then. Gods were everywhere. 
right? In, in, in the sort of Roman pantheon of gods, a very sort of polytheistic, there were gods for everything around every corner in that sense. The, the worship of the gods touched every facet of life, civic spaces, regional geographic spaces, your craft or vocation. There were gods for those particular spaces. Every sort of region of your life was, was impinged upon by sort of the, the, the gods. And then uh, in the time, yeah, in the time of the New Testament, um, Paul uh, addresses this, but, but we, we know sort of culturally there'd been a new sort of arrival among the pantheon of gods, the Caesars. Um, Augustus had declared that his adopted father Julius upon his death was a god which made Augustus the son of the god. And that would continue in his descendants so that in the lifetime of the people in the New Testament, not only is there just kind of the religious landscape of the Roman gods, but, but the Roman sort of uh, emperors and Rome itself became this sort of idolatrous space of allegiance and worship, literally the son of the god. So this is the context, idols there and then, the gods, they're everywhere. And into that mix, uh, we find these three sort of unknown Jews, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, uh, they show up and start talking about the gospel, a, a unique take on the good news. There had been proclamations of good news with relation to Caesar. These guys show up and talk about good news of a different sort, the gospel. They start telling uh, pagans, anyone who will listen, that there is, in fact, actually one true God. That had been said before by the Jews, but they had sort of were ethnically defined and sort of stayed within their spaces, so the Romans let them sort of coexist because it wasn't sort of spreading in that sense. But these guys are just telling everyone across cultural lines and eth ethnic lines that there is one true God. And, and, and then they're nuancing it further that he actually has a true son, Jesus, which has been demonstrated in the fact that God has raised him from the dead. No one had said it quite like that before. So, so in, into the mix of the gods, this is the life they live in around every corner, worship the gods, your neighbors are worshiping gods, this is what you do, Rome, Caesar, all these things. The gospel shows up and is announced, there's one true God who has come to you in Jesus. And they begin following him. And, and this does something... It's natural. It's what you might think creates tension, right? What, what now does it mean for them to live in a world uh, where everywhere are gods, and now they're professing there's actually one, and he has been uniquely revealed to us and present to us in uh, Jesus. This creates tension, right? It, 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 it means, like, what, what, how will they live in that context, right? Like, it had been accepted previously you know, you got your God, I got my God, that's fine. As long as you, like, honor the one that I honor when you're in my space, you don't do anything to sort of cross or disrespect that line. Have your gods, have them, so long as when you're in my sort of local place, you are respectful of that you honor and worship them. As well, this played out in a variety of contexts. So, so in the tension of this moment, how Christians are uh, sort of viewed as intolerant, right? They, they, they can no longer sort of take part in these same sort of practices in the way that they had before because now there's this new profession. There's one true God, and his name, he's been revealed in, in Jesus. 
And, and now they're viewed as uh, this exclusivity, this intolerance now raises some concerns because, you know, as long as everyone sort of respected everyone else in that respect, you got your gods, I got mine. When we're in the same space, we'll just sort of recognize that. Well, well now that is thrown into a bit of, 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 of tension and, and, and Christians risk bringing the wrath of all those gods on everyone, right? They're disrupting that system. And so not surprisingly, then we're viewed as a threat to society. So we have the gods, we have uh, the gospel shows up in that, and it creates some tension. What does it mean for them to live in that tension? Which, which moves us to kind of the last thing we would consider in this sort of aside. What, well, what is the Christian response? How do the Christians respond to that tension uh, in, in, in that context, right? They still live in the same place. All the same things are still there. But Jesus has changed their uh, anchor, their focus, their allegiance. So now how do they live? What will their response be? How will they respond? Will they live? How will they live in a world that is now incompatible and sometimes hostile to their burgeoning Christian faith? One way we might put the question is this. Would, would their worship exclusively of Jesus make them exclusive in their love? Right, like does, does this sort of exclusivity now, it's Jesus, he is the true God. Will that then change the way they treat others where they're now that uh, that will also become more narrowly focused? Interestingly, you, you guys know the stories of early church history. That's not what happens. In fact, on, on the contrary, uh, it, it takes a very different turn. Almost ironically, their exclusive, exclusive worship of, of Jesus uh, changes their posture to the world around them. Rather than like closing them in, it opens them up. It, it, it turns out, it turns out that when your life is anchored, when the one you worship is, is a savior who would spend his life for enemies, well, well, that changes then how you also will relate to the world around you. You might say that it creates faith and love and hope. Right, as we thought about all the responses last week, and you could go through example after example in church history, of course we get it wrong, but, but moments where the Christian response to whatever pressure they felt was one of, 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 of love without sort of sacrificing allegiance to Jesus, one that acknowledged Jesus laid his life down for me and for you, and I can do the same as well. It's celebrated in the letter to the Thessalonians and throughout the New Testament. But maybe, like, we, we hear this, we're like, okay, that's great, but that was then, you know, and at least uh, are aware, maybe not so much, there are places in our world where it probably tracks pretty similar in terms of, like, this is what gods look like in the world, and maybe it is more present and visible, uh, so maybe it's still true in some places now, but not quite so true here, like, for you, perhaps, for me. Our experience of this movement, the gods, the gospel, the tension it creates, and and our response to the world might, might not be quite the same. So what does it look like in Overland Park for you and me here uh, now? So if we kind of thought about the idols there and then. We could use a, a lot of examples, but I just want to invite you to maybe think about what, well, what does this movement, this experience of conversion, turning from idols to trust the gospel and recognizing that it creates attention in how you relate to the world and then moving you not to sort of shut down and close off or withdraw to say, uh, would the world just take the world away, but to open you up to love enemies? What's that look like uh, presently for you?
We could go, I thought about just throwing the room open, you know, like, well, what are some present-day idols? And we could have this beautiful back and forth, but I'm just going to keep talking. So uh, it's a Chiefs game, so we've got to move it along, all right? Um, uh, I didn't mean to look at anyone in particular when I said that. Hopefully you didn't feel uh, <laughs> any particular judgment there. But um, So we could go with any number of examples, but I, I want to just, I'll offer one as illustrative of like uh, what, maybe the movement that's happening here is. And, and, and we'll just kind of, in our culture, at least where we are, there, it's not, you know, quite the same, but maybe one cultural idol would be like just the self, self-expression, uh, how you uh, construct yourself, self-love, right? Like a self-fulfillment. These are things that drive us. We might call them a cultural idol. Uh, and, and, you know, when that's the case, right, it, 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 then it becomes like, who you are, is, you have the power to create it. Self is something you construct, and that opens up all kinds of possibilities, right? I mean, like, just, it, it makes sense. Then you, you could just, you could construct and create all, all kinds of things when the self is sort of the fundamentally most important, who you are, and all those kinds of things. And I'm not sort of downgrading those, right? But, but let's just hold that as an example of, like, the, the, this may be one expression of the gods in our life. Well, then the gospel shows up. Jesus shows up, Paul, you know, shows up talking to us, and we read this letter that says, uh, says to us, the good news of Jesus says something to all the gods in your life, this process of conversion, of turning away from the gods around us to the one true God, and it says to us, actually, that self is given. It's not something you construct. Jesus creates new in you, makes you new, takes whatever was there before that is dead without the life of God and makes it a new creation. Self is, is given. It's not something you just construct, not something you get to um, just create yourself. Well, naturally, this creates a tension. Right? What, what, does, what does it then look like to be a Christian in a space where, where it culturally, fundamentally, the bottom line, the gods are, are just kind of self-expression, and the gospel shows up and says, well, actually, no, there is a different way, a fundamentally more true way. God has created life and created you. Well, in the same way for the, as it did for the Thessalonians, it creates tension. Right, like, like you do you works, right? It works. You do you, and, and then, but when we're in spaces together, don't, like, as long as it doesn't encroach on me in the same way that, you know, you have your gods, right? But, but now the Christian faith shows up and to, has to address this tension, and it's disruptive, right? It's disruptive to how uh, all of those things work. What will the Christian response be? The same questions apply. Will it be? exclusionary in the sense that the same tension the Thessalonians would have felt, the, the Romans around them wondering, will it move them to close themselves off and push them away, to throw the world away and cast it off our shoulders? Now that there is this incompatibility between my faith and the world around me, well, actually, uh, surprisingly again, no. Turns out following a Savior who lays down his life for enemies, doesn't close us off, it opens us up. It, the, the, the work of that holiness and that hope in us as we find life in Jesus, it creates us and makes us new as individuals and together it opens us up. 
to love. Um, we've referenced his work before, but philosopher and, and theologian Miroslav Volf uh, describes, talks about this particular uh, pool of our life. That this is the paradox, right? That when everything is constructed on, on, on what you can build yourself to be. It says it, it doesn't hold up. It, it will eventually echo with, with emptiness and unfulfillment. But then the, sort of the gospel, he says, this is the gospel's answer to that, that God created you to be dwelled, indwelled by Christ. And that in that place, the infinite love of Jesus now flows into and through you. And that it's in this place that yourself, who you are, now finds its only real and true home, which means it drives you out of sort of the idol of self-fulfillment and self-expression and now pushes you and places you in the presence of God and neighbor in a way that prior you would have only and ever been concerned with your own expression self. Again, it's just an example, and you could, we could probably pick up a few different spaces. But it's interesting to me that Paul even picks the theme up in our reading. As he, as he get, lands here on their holiness and hope, they've been converted, they've been changed, but, but he says it's not just inward. The word of that, its effect in the world, it's spreading, he told us in verses 6 and 7 and 8, that, that word is like your example and your expression of the life of Christ is reverberating beyond just the, the sort of closed spaces of your community. It's a, it's a beautiful image. I, I'm going to say something that probably doesn't ever get said nearly enough in sermons. Can, let's go back to Elvis. Right? Let's, let's just let me take you back to Elvis. What does the Christian life look like in a world like this? How does it, should it, ought it to respond? One response is to say, oh, make the world go away. Get it off, get it off of my shoulders. But incredibly, that's not what happens. The gospel shows up into this community Surrounded by the gods, same as us. They may be different and have different expressions. Uh, conversion happens. It changes us. The holiness, God works and changes and fills us with hope. And then it does this incredible thing. As one author put it, it throws us back into the world. But not to sort of find our security there or our hope there or some kind of like kingdom come that we are able to build. No, we're thrown back into the world to love it the way Jesus did, as it is sinful and broken, lost and hurting, burdensome and overwhelming. We're, we're thrust back into the world to lay our own lives down. Listen to what Paul, again, he says, like word of you is spreading that all over the region in verse 7 and 8. Just growing, growing, even in the midst of persecution and affliction. I, I took our kids to, uh, they've been playing volleyball. And UMKC, uh, go Roos, right? Whose house? Roos house and the Lord's house. But, you know, uh, right, like we went, they had a, a, t a tournament, so we watched some volleyball, which was really fun. And I think we, we must have been sitting next to some family, and it was a blast. Like, uh, and I think, I think their kid was one of the exceptional players. She had like 21 kills or something. It was insane. But she, she kept yelling, I see you. Uh, and they would say the player's name. I see you, like random moments. I see you. <laughs> and uh, then she would like do it to all, uh, like various players on the team. I see you. And it was beautiful, like encouraging. You can almost hear Paul, like, like this community living in this tension. I see you. I see you. Good days and bad. Oh, the, the gospel is at work in your life. Which brings us to the end 
and the beginning of our reading this morning. Right, that how did they get here? What's it look like for people trying to follow Jesus in a world that feels at odds to live the gospel into this tension in a way that like throws us back into the world instead of closing us off from it, in a way that bears witness, right, that, that even under pressure shares life and, and light. I don't, I don't know. I'm going to offer a suggestion, and it's overly simplistic, but I want to say it's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. And this is how Paul expresses it in the reading we read this morning. Look at, look at, look at, look at how he starts the reading this morning. Verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Right? He has chosen you. Before we ever get to the experience of conversion in this passage, we begin with the, the, the first work of God. He has chosen you, which is the good news of the gospel. It tells me and you that holiness and hope and, and all of these things you try to wrestle through and sort out, like they are God's work. First, prior, they are God's work for, in, and through you. And this is really Good news. It's not just where he starts. It's where he finishes. It's a, a, a bookend, right? Uh, someone recently gave my children a, a Harry Potter bookends, and I'm really envious. I want them for myself. I've yet to steal them, but it's coming, so look out. They're not in here, but, uh, right? It's the bookends of this conversion experience. God has chosen you in verse 4, and then in verse 10, Jesus, the one who delivers you. The weight of the world is on his shoulders, not yours. A New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, describes this moment. He says, this is, this, is, this is the remarkable thing about the passage, this particular passage. It's, it's that at the arrival of the news of Jesus, so Paul and Silvanus, they show up and, and, and they, they announce the news of Jesus. At hearing that news, what is remarkable in this story, N.T. Wright says, is that these people feel so compelled to then leave worshiping idols and begin worshiping Jesus. That they, that they turn at all, he says, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Like just again, to catch what is happening here, what is incredible is as word reverberates for hundreds of miles around this community, he says, it's, this, is the, this is the story, it's this unheard of thing that a quite ordinary group of people, we know them as idolaters, as everyone was, that a quite ordinary group of people had done something extraordinary. That is, they'd, they'd given up serving idols and now they're talking exclusively about Jesus in response to an entirely unexpected message. God has chosen you. He has raised Jesus from the dead and he is the one who delivers. I don't know, if, if you don't hear anything else this morning, I hope you will hear the gospel that God has chosen you first. Right? This is the story that his work is prior. It is, it is first. Before you ever get to the holiness and hope that fill the pages of, of this letter, God has chosen you. It's, 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 Paul puts it this way elsewhere, while we were enemies. The word while is important. Is, is first. His work is first. We were, we're still sort of not uh, responding while we 
And then the second word is important too. It's not just that God gives first, but he gives to the worst. I see what I did, see what I did there? I don't know. It was, I knew it was a stretch, but there you go. Right? It's not just that his love comes first. It's not just while, but it's while we were enemies. In this passage, it's while you and I were idolaters, lost in the idolatry of our present day and circumstances. It's while. Uh, it's first, but also when we are so far. It's not just that God's love comes first, but that it's, it, look, we can do that. We do that. We will give first to people. Like this makes sense in our human sort of understanding of love and affection, but generally we give to the right kinds of people. It's typically how our giving works, but that's not what Paul says here and throughout the pages of the New Testament. Again and again, he will hammer home not only that God gives first, but he gives to the wrong kinds of people. And in this context, it's idolaters. It's, it's God has chosen you, idolaters, and he will deliver you in Jesus. It's, 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 it's God, as Paul says in Romans, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that are not. He works holiness and hope, not you. You may know, I'm, 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 I enjoy Wendell Berry's writing. Kentucky Farmer writes about all sorts of things, fiction, nonfiction. It's beautiful and fun. But there's a story that he uh, says, is, is sort of told uh, about him that his father one time mentioned to him, well, Wendell, you know, you, you know about his marriage, after, after his marriage. Well, Wendell, you, you, you got yourself a good girl. And the younger Barry, Wendell Barry, responded, he said, I know it. And his dad blurted out quickly in language too colorful for our context, he said, well, you don't deserve a bit of credit for that. And, and, and I, I, I hear that in the gospel this morning. God has chosen you. Jesus delivers you. You don't deserve a bit of credit for that doesn't matter how long you've been walking with him or how sort of new faith may be to you. God has chosen you. Jesus delivers you before you've done anything. And, and out of that security, you're thrown back into the world to love. It's like Jesus, right? At the beginning of his ministry, he hears his father say to him, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And out of that assurance and approval, he's thrown into the world to love his enemies. He's not chasing. He's not giving self-fulfillment or self-love or self-expression. He's not constructing it. He is resting in who God has named him to be. I have chosen you. And only out of that security, he's now free to love even his enemies. So also the church, you and me, in our idol-loving hearts, God has moved toward us and said, I have chosen you. And in this gospel good news, he throws us back into the world. Now, free, free to love even our enemies. How will we respond to that tension in our own lives? Well, I think we catch a glimpse of what it can look like in our reading this morning. I guess if I were going to offer, you're like, I'm going to give you a summary, and then I'm done. And you're like, you, you should just set that at the beginning, and uh, I could be home, like, getting the nachos and cheese ready. But it, it's this. It's very simply this, that holiness and hope are God's work. 
It's God's work. And I, I hope that is good news to you. Maybe you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders. Maybe you feel the need to, uh, your response to the world is characterized by fear or uncertainty or all these kinds of things. I want to say to you that, that uh, what, is, what marks, what happens to a community that changes in, in this way and how it relates to the world? Well, God, that happens. He takes idol-loving hearts and breathes life where there's only been death and inwardness and he works new creation and then throws us out into the world. Any Willy Wonka fans? Yes. The rest of you who are too afraid to admit it, I suppose. But You guys remember the scene from the, I guess, the, the older movie where, uh, you know, all the kids get the everlasting gobstopper, you know, and they, uh, they all run and, you know, all of them capitulate. They like, they go to, what was his name? Slugworth, right? The villainous Slugworth. They're gonna betray Wonka's secrets. You remember the scene though, Charlie like thinks about it, you know? But there's a conversion. He like uh, comes and he brings it back and he, he sets it down on the counter. And, and remember Wonka's angry and he's working. He doesn't even pick his head up. You don't see it from the camera. He just, you see his hands slide over the gobstopper. You just remember the scene? And he says, so shines a good deed in a weary world. Right? That's, I don't know, the gospel. I think that's how it's meant to be felt and experienced. It's, it's this beautiful ray of light and grace in a weary, heavy burden. The burden of having to construct everything about yourself in a, in a weary world. It's a breath of life. Oh, make the world go away. Get it off of my shoulders. God says, actually, why don't you let me take it? I will choose this world, and I will redeem it. In his correspondence with uh, his friend, uh, Dorothy Day, she was the Catholic activist, created this, the Catholic worker movement, worked uh, tirelessly in her later conversion to Jesus in life, and then worked tirelessly in campaigns for the poor and the hungry and the homeless, and in his correspondence with her, uh, Thomas Merton, who also wrote frequently about his life and faith, uh, in their correspondence recorded back and forth, they have a conversation about hope, about perseverance. And, and in it, he says, uh, he says something that has just stuck with me. Hope, he says, is a greater scandal than you think. Hope is a, is a greater scandal then you think he's like we think of perseverance as kind of just hanging on but it's not hanging on to some sort of course of action which we have set our minds to refusing to let go it's it's not even a matter of sort of getting a bulldog grip on faith and not letting the devil pry us loose from it he says though many saints make it look that way he said i think there's something lacking from that picture of of hope hope he says is a greater scandal than we think he says, hope, I, I kind of wonder if it doesn't work like this. Like, like I'm coming to think that God uh, loves us and helps us, right? When we, we, we come to that place where we have nothing, where the weight of the world, you might say, as Elvis croons, is just too much to bear. We just want to throw it off. And he says, in this, in this instance, uh, hope is um, this kind of perseverance. It's not some sort of tenacity that you possess. It is instead, ironically, the opposite, where you come to the place where you've gradually let go of everything, given uh, piece by piece until there's nothing left but God. 
perseverance, hope in that sense isn't so much like hanging on, but it's, it's letting go. It's turning from all of those things and trusting Jesus who delivers, who has chosen you in those moments when maybe all you want to do is sing with Elvis. If you didn't before, maybe after this week you will. Right? The gospel shows up and invites you to sing a different tune when all you want to do, the weight, the burden that you carry says the world, go away. Get it off my shoulders into that space. The gospel shows up and shines like light in a weary world and says, I have chosen you. Will you Thank you for listening to the Park City Church Podcast. To learn more about our church and or to find ways to get involved in our community, visit us at parkcitykc.com or follow us on social media at parkcitykc.com.